You're listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast, a podcast covering the world of Mormon arts and examining the intersection between faith and creativity. For more Mormon arts news and interviews, please visit mormonartist.net. Welcome to the Mormon Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Morris. Today we're speaking with Laura Allred Hurtado. Hi, Laura. Hi. Laura Allred Hurtado is the Global Acquisitions Curator for Art in the Church History Department. She has an MA in Art History and Visual Studies from the University of Utah and a BA in Art History and Curatorial Studies from BYU. Laura has presented papers at scholarly conferences and curated exhibits at the Utah Museum of Fine Art, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, and various other venues. So, um, Laura, you've curated a number of shows featuring or including Mormon art for the Church History Museum and the other museums mentioned, um, such as the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. So I'd like to discuss some of those shows. In 2013, there was a show... Um, at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art called Mondo, Utah, the Utah Biennial. And there was a part of that show that featured Mormon work called Mondo, Mormon, Christo, Camorra, and the Celestial Style. Um, so first, I just want to ask you how you got involved in that particular show. Sure. Uh, Aaron Moulton, uh, who's now at Gagosian Gallery in L.A., uh, was the curator of Yumoka at the time, and he... Um, organized an exhibition. Um, biennials are really uh, common and very popular right now, um, and and they can be thought of as these sort of like micro international centers of the art world. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know you think of <clears throat> maybe New York being the center of the art world in like the 1950s or Paris in the 19th century. Um, uh, these art fairs are these sort of like um, international exchanges where um, people come from all over the world to show um, the kind of cultural production that's going on. Um, and Aaron wanted to take that concept in and look at Utah as a kind of microcosm that has all these little tiny art worlds within it. Um, so it was an art fair for the state of Utah, um, but it was an, it was an invitational. So it was looking at... Um, at um you know some like the state some of the the collections in the state some of um it was at um you Umoka, but that was formerly known as the art uh, Salt Lake Art Center and when it was it was a collecting institution so um so they showed some permanent some of the works from that permanent collection and anyway I was invited to um to represent um the church's collection or, or Mormon art. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, I kind of thought of my area as, um, like I I often shorthand referred it to the Mormon pavilion. Uh Um, and that was in part in reference to like the world, the tradition of like world's fairs in which Mormons, uh, you know, would, would participate in world's fairs starting in, um, I believe it was 1833 was the Chicago World's Fair was with when they started and um, a lot of our, our visual um, heritage comes out of the World's Fair so I, I wanted to kind of pun on that um, and 
do you want me to talk about the works that were included or? Yeah. So some of the artists um, that I noticed were Annie Poon. She had um, her book of visions. Well, that's, she does paper animation and that was um, a film, a short film, her book of visions. So I'm assuming she had some, was it the film that was playing or was it the, the, um, yeah, it was the, the papers film. that it she had. Film. It was so the film. Okay. Was was plain. I mean, uh-huh. I wanted to think about the way that there are Mormon art artists that um, are engaging with a contemporary aesthetic practice and even referential towards a larger contemporary ideas, but at the same time um, exploring religious notions. Um, and so I, I showed Annie Poon's video, and I thought, you know, as it relates to like exploring the notion of visions, which is super interesting, but it also is, you know, quite similar, although you know aesthetically different than uh, to William Kentridge, who you know has had shows at MoMA or um, you know all over the place, and um, and I like this notion of like this kind of rudimentary animation that mm-hmm. that's in her work, um, and then um, I included. David Chapman Lindsay, who who does these really smart pieces where he draws on his hand um, and then um, uses his hand as like a printmaking material and, and comes up with you know maybe three prints in an, an edition um, uh, using printer's ink. Um, and the cool thing is is that oftentimes you know for this series that he produced for the Mondo Mormon um, exhibition, they were. You know, all tied to stories that had to do with touch, like it was, um, you know, the woman who touched the hem of of, of Jesus's robe to be healed, um, or um, you know, even one of the ones we had in there was of the Salt Lake Temple, which, you know, so much of the kind of legacy and dialogue around the temple has to do with the labor and the hands that built it for 40 years. And, and so that very much is, is kind of tied to that, that notion. Um, I had work by an artist named Stephen Moore, who, um, who did these pieces called the healing blessings. And in some regard, they're kind of performative where he would, you know, leave them at places and um, like crash sites or when people were going through cancer or, you know, there were these sort of like tokens of healing. And um, that, that felt very, that kind of ritual felt very um, akin to performance art, but it also seemed to make reference to the story of, you know, Joseph Smith sending a handkerchief in Nauvoo when there was the malaria outbreak. So I, I liked that kind of duality to it. Hold on one moment. Hey, you're okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry for the interruption. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Um, um, so I, I liked the, the, the duality uh, in terms of the like it both referencing a kind of religious ritual or a religious practice and a kind of performance art practice. Um, and another piece that was in there was um, Jay Kirk Richards' um, Christo series. Mm-hmm. So I had heard about this series um, when I attended a conference, um, the uh, Association for Mormon Letters conference, and there was a paper presented about it. Um, and at the time, he was just doing very small um, images of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the idea was... Um, you know, this kind of stripped kind of 
skeletal icon of, of what Christ looks like, you know, the, the beard and the, the long hair were these kind of token identifiers, but it didn't, you know, get so obsessive over and like, this is what he looks like. And I like that kind, I liked the notion of abstracting that, that that felt very strong to me. Um, and at the same time, I had seen a work by um, a Belgian artist named Francis Elise, who's based in Argentina, um, who had done um, who had done a series called Saint Fabiola. And what he had done was he had spent over years spent time um, gathering images of this saint, and they're all done in the same way. They the side profile. She has a suit a veil on her head, the nose looks the same, and so he basically just looks for folk reproductions of this image of the saint. Um, and, you know, when they become repeated over and over again, it's kind of this notion of like a simulacra, like where it's like um, a referent on a referent of a referent, right, <laughs> where mm-hmm. it kind of loses its its original, like, mm-hmm. um, itness. Um but I, I felt like that model actually was quite important for images of the Savior because um, I, I think it is sometimes a misstep to really kind of um, create an image that, that um, claims a stake in terms of like his physicality because um, it, it masks the notion of, of what we know and what we don't know and and mm-hmm. what we can see and what we can't see. And um, so I, I liked the notion of abstracting that. Um, and like Elise, um, I, I called up Kirk and I said, you know, you have this series, you have, you know, maybe one or two. I want you to make 150 and I want you to make it in a month. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to build like a 20 foot wall and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and I'm not going to pay you. <laughs> I just want you to do it because <laughs> it's a cool idea and it needs to be done. And he was like, okay, great, cool. <laughs> um, and, and we were lucky enough to be able to acquire in the terms of, of having him do it. And that wasn't the terms of, of the original idea. It was uh-huh. just um, this this kind of concept and, and exploding his, his original idea. Um, and, and Kirk was just you know, fabulous and great, great to work with. And, um, and, you know, late kind of drew out a design on paper and then we, we went from there. Um, so, um, and the, my wall space, I had a 40 feet of wall and, and I gave that one work 20 feet. So, so it took up a good half of, of, um, of the exhibition space. Um, yeah, so that that was that was um, Mondo Mormon. The um, the the notion of um, of Kimura comes out of of Annie Poon um, mm-hmm. because in the Book of Visions it's it's referencing when Joseph Smith finds the the plates, and then the celestial style is referencing. Oh, I'm I'm tired. I can't remember his name. Let's see. I have it right here. <laughs> oh, okay. Hagen Halturn who was a BYU professor, and he published this book called Art Integration, The Spiritual Foundation and Anagological Level of Meaning of the Celestial Style. And it was just this kind of overly, like, ambitious, um, handwritten book uh, about um, about um, 
how abstraction can, I mean, in, in its most simplest terms, how abstraction can be used in terms of, of a cultural experience and in terms of, of a spiritual experience. And, and that, you know, that certainly felt very much like, uh, like Kandinsky to me, but it also seemed very uniquely Mormon when you're going to call it a, a celestial style that, 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 mm-hmm. um, that's distinctly Mormon. And, um, and, and because he taught at BYU, his influence isn't just important to him, but to the artists that he worked with, um, Richard Gate um, among one of them, and Mark England, um, but that, that you could see a kind of unifier in terms of, or echo of influence. Um, and and I, liked, I liked the notion of his ambition. So what I included was actually not his work, but the manual itself. Um, which I thought was was just this great kind of, um, mm-hmm. I mean, obsession is the wrong word, but I mean this great kind of uh, meditation on art and God and image making. Um, and, and I think even the notion that it is handwritten, um, also kind of testifies to being this kind of personal like manifesto for him mm-hmm. um uh, so we included that that book that's really interesting was that something that 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 you'd already acquired um it was it was in our collection already and i i ordered another one um I, I, and, and the cool thing was, is the one I ordered, you know, just on Amazon was signed, um, to Bruce Smith from Hog and Halterne, which was kind of cool, um, that, that, um, that connection there. Um, I don't know why Bruce is selling it, but but that was was kind (laughs) of cool capture. Okay. And for Um, for our listeners, who is Bruce Smith? Oh, uh, Bruce Smith is is uh, another BYU art professor, um, and he uh, um, has worked in the state collection in the Church History Museum. Um, a painter with this really cool, um, sometimes bordering on a kind of German expressionist sort of style, but that that feels a little too rough of a, of a descriptor. But um, anyway, a cool painter at mm-hmm. BYU. So there was a write-up of the show, um, and you had, you had an article that you'd written about what you call the Mormon Pavilion or Mondo Mormon, um, and you were talking about how um, artists in general tend to implement a postmodern or even a modernist aesthetic, um, which typically deconstructs and critiques institutional authority. Um, and, but for people who are producing religious art, um, that, that might, I don't know, create some interesting tensions because they might be coming out of this postmodernist or modernist tradition, but, um, but at the same time, they're part of an, an institution. And so how, how do you, um, create art that's, um, that's, that examines religion observance and devotion that isn't necessarily ironic or cynical or at the same time on the flip side of things sentimental kind of 
kind of um, striking a balance sort of between those is, is I guess, the sweet spot for contemporary religious artists. Um, so what would you say about the work in the show and, and what you think was working in, in those pieces as far as striking that balance of not being ironic or cynical, and, but not also being kind of sentimental or sappy sappy yeah, yeah sentimental yeah yeah it's it's a great question i mean i, I think there's there's a lot of people uh, a lot of uh art professionals um in utah that have really been invested in the notion of of mormon art and mormon visual culture and they have um in um in some regard you know really been dichotomous in terms of like you know, it's representational art that can carry this story, and there's a fence, and and BYU has faltered because they have, you know, they they've forsaken Mormonism, they've forsaken us because they they are not, you know, making representational art, and it's only representational art that can that can, um, you know, carry the vehicle of the Mormon story or the Mormon experience, and mm-hmm. there's this sort of burden of that. Um, and and on the same coin, there's this um, also from those voices a kind of vilif- vilifying um, just postmodernism uh, in general. I think I think modernist aesthetic does lend itself to spirituality. I mean, you see, um, you know, Kandinsky for one, or you know, I mean, Dali. The Surrealist did a lot of 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 kind of really cool religious. Um, paintings um matisse did a, a catholic chapel and worked tightly with a priest uh, in france um but i think in, in some regard with postmodernism as a philosophy it, it tends to deconstruct and and i think what i liked um about um that theory or those sort of ideas manifesting in in perhaps kirk's work is that I think what it does quite rightly is that it deconstructs the notion of, of a single image of Christ, right? It's it's mm-hmm. exploded into 150, and in some he has black hair and red and brown, and and some he has a halo, and some he has a cross, and some he has, you know, crown of thorns. And, and um, I think that that sort of multiplicity is really interesting and um, is really useful um, because we see Christ in in a variety of different ways, and um, you know he you know he has over two hundred names listed in the Bible, and, and I think that sort of multiplicity is is um, and that sort of deconstruction of a single image is actually um, extremely useful um, in this uh, in this situation, and and um, even abstracting the face is. Um, yeah, I, I think in my article I talked about how it, it mirrored that the celestial fog in which we live in. You know that that we you know do really only access Christ in in types and in shadows and in here and there and on our peripheries. I think and and I I think that that kind of deconstruction is and and multiplication is is, is very smart. Um, and and yeah that's how it succeeds or whatever you can cut that part yeah and well and then and you referenced um 
uh, Brad Kramer as um, kind of commenting on on images of Christ and to paraphrase perhaps badly <laughs> what he says um, thinking of trying to find that true single likeness of Christ might not might not make sense when our experience is not that we've seen this singular this singular um, image of Jesus Christ. Our experience is oftentimes symbolic. You know, it's taking the sacrament. It's um, it's being the body of Christ. It's seeing Jesus Christ and in, in other people as we're serving. And so, um, so, so in a sense, J. Kirk Richards' pieces is, is capturing that idea, that kind of comprehensive experience that that anyone could maybe relate to or or read into when they see his works because they're it does leave I we interviewed J. Kirk Richards um last year about and this was one of the things we talked about, um, which also goes back to his the presentation he gave at the Association for Roman Letters, which is that it it allows for some um it allows space for your own experience with Jesus Christ and also um, you know, even maybe um, allows more space for revelation. That's actually a different topic for another day. But um, so going back to that, the sort of maybe what what some artists are doing that is is religious, but maybe not devotional as much, or maybe is a little more ironic or critiquing, or on the other side, sentimental. I guess would you say that J. Kirk Richards' work it's it's postmodern and then it's deconstructing um, our experience with images that we've previously seen of Jesus Christ, but it's not deconstructing Jesus Christ himself or, or even the institution that J. Kirk Richards is affiliated with, which is Mormonism. Um, and so in that sense, it's, it's actually more, it's devotional being neither ironic or cynical or sentimental, but also postmodern. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't say that all of his work is postmodern, but this work in particular mm-hmm. is. Um, and I and I without being ironic or cynical or um and, and I think I think that's I think it's important. I think it's I think it's a significant piece. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well let's move on to um another show that you curated, which um, was, it's it was for the Church History Museum. It's the exhibit Practicing Charity, Everyday Daughters of God. Um, and is that one currently yeah. up at the Church History Museum? We're closed. Um, uh-huh. So it cl- uh, that exhibition closed in September. It was up from about February to September. Okay, but it can be seen Which- online. Yeah, you can see it online, which um, which is a cool thing, I think. Yeah, and we'll we'll include a link to that um, in the transcript and show notes. Um, so I want to talk a bit about that one. So in uh, one of the write-ups that you did about the show, you talked about how it was organized around three artists: Lee Udall Benyon, Brian Kershiznik, and Kathleen Peterson. Um, and you said in a in a an article on Juvenile Instructor um, that you selected them because they consistently depict women as ennobled while simultaneously celebrating the importance of their everyday lives. 
lives that in the ceremony of the everyday perform their covenants and their religion in important and symbolic ways, but they're not painted as ideal or placed on a pedestal. Um, rather, they're authentic, noble, everyday daughters of God. Um, so tell me about putting together that show and playing with that theme. Sure. So um, I guess it just started with wanting to do um, a, a show about women. Um, and it was in part, you know, to tell you the truth, a reaction to the um, the Boy Scout show, <laughs> um, which I think, you know, um, was important work. But I, um, you know, I wanted to do one that... Um, you know, if we were going to have a Boy Scout show, I also wanted to do a show about about women. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so that was kind of the notion uh, in mind. And um, I had been, when I started working uh, for the church, I spent a good six months um, just calling up artists, introducing myself, and doing studio visits. Um, and while I was in a studio visit with Lee, um, I remember her telling me, oh, no, no, it was with Brian. Mm-hmm. I remember him telling me that the very first time he had painted was in Lee's studio. And I had this kind of like, oh, that's so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> like when you see their work. It looks very it's similar. So obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, it was something I had never known. Um, uh, and um, And I was... I was surprised that I hadn't known it. Um, and then, you know, of course, Kathy uh, lives in Spring City, too. And although there wasn't a direct mentoring link, uh, you know, you just see a kind of shared visual language mm-hmm. in their work. And I think what's also shared in their work is, is you know, what you said in that quote, um, this, this notion of and there's a lot of women and a lot of women in dresses. And I think Brian said, you know, if you took a survey of my work, a kind of statistical, like, analysis, it would be, like, 75% women or, or more. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a consciousness, I think, with those three artists who depict women as subject matter. Um, and, and so I was interested in that. And I was also interested... Um, uh, as I said in that article, in in the notion of of this kind of um, meditation on the everyday, um, you know. So in Brian's painting, you know, there was one in the exhibition called "Bringing Food," and it was, you know, just as as it describes, you know, it's just like a woman bringing food. And and the cool thing is, is that it doesn't, it's not like clear who she's bringing food to. Like it could be. Um, it could be to a neighbor. It could be, you know, just to her own table. Um, and so there are all these sort of like micro little meditations on on um, on the things women do um, and uh, the, the things Mormon women do. You know, like I, I don't know how many times I saw my mom bring food to to a neighbor, to a friend, and and I I liked the idea. Um, it, it was originally child, child titled Practicing in Eternity, and I, I think in some ways that captures the notion a little more clearly. I was thinking about the way in which we, you know, are practicing how we will live in heaven, and, and yet that's like, 
you know, it's really plunky and archaic and not, not, mm-hmm. you know, not where, what it's going to be, but the, like the gist of it, you know, whether it's like picking up socks, like these just sort of like seemingly mundane things are, you know, kind of important service and a service that like, um, that happens like every day and happens, you know, in the mundane and in the shadows and, um, and and I I liked I liked that I, I thought it was very much in all of it all three of their works um, this notion of, of friendship um, and then also the notion of like um, a kind of like empathetic sense on imperfection right that um, Brian had another work called Halo Repair and mm-hmm. he's a woman. And she's getting her halo repaired. Like, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's just very playful. Um, sorry, it's sorry. She's eating um, toilet paper. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Gross. This is very uh, <laughs> um, illustrative <laughs> of what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like pause for a minute while I practice charity. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's just, um, I, I like that idea. And I think, you know, so often, um, Mormon women feel this need of like being perfect or sometimes like, I don't know, there's this like demand for like performing the things in weird ways and, um, you know, whether it's like. A lovely tablecloth on like a really shiny table. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm probably getting too far. But um, I, I just like this sense of of, um, of authenticity in mm-hmm. their work. And um, um, and uh, and a kind of lovely meditation on the everyday. Um, and you know, it, it was well received. We had I had people. Um, a lot of people come and ask me for the text labels and um, we had, we tried to do a project in relationship to achievement days so that uh, girls could come and, and get their um, achievement day requirements signed off by attending the exhibition or oh, a young neat. woman's value signed off um, like into the Boy Scout exhibit where they could do a merit badge or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's so, yeah, that was that. That's really neat, and and we've talked about this before. I, there was when we talked previously. I asked you just what themes you've you've seen because um, you've seen a lot of of contemporary Mormon art, and I asked you what themes you've seen popping up, and and the one that you that first came to your mind was that theme that's kind of reflective of Terrell Givens paradoxes of Mormon culture, the disintegration of sacred distance. So the, um, the sacred and the quotidian kind of side by side, the mundane and the sublime, um, experienced as one, which this exhibit was, um, illustrative of that idea. Um, so, so that was really interesting, um, that you had an entire exhibit kind of devoted to that idea. Um, yeah, I mean, even in the like kind of sub subtitle of it, it was mm-hmm. practicing charity, everyday daughters of God. Mm-hmm. It was trying to like, you know, on one hand, really 
celebrate the the work of the Monday, you know, mm-hmm. celebrate the importance of the mundane and uh, the significance of it and and the sacred in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a photograph. I, I may be getting ahead of myself, well, but um, there's a photograph. Oh, we can wait. Go ahead. Let me just introduce really quickly what you're going to start talking about, and then we can talk about it. Um, sure. So the next, the last exhibit that I want to talk about that um, that Laura has curated, and she's curated a number of shows, not not all of them with Mormon art, but the one that currently is at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art is called Church versus State Contemporary Collecting Praxis. So... Why don't you actually finish your thought about the the photograph in that piece or in that um, exhibit? Sure, sure. Um, uh, so there's there's a photograph in the, that exhibit that I think again kind of captures or typifies that that notion of of the mundane and the sublime. Well, there's a couple, but um, you know, one is one is Mark Hedengren's um, photograph. Uh, he recreated Dorothea Lay in Ansel Adams' Three Mormon Town series and. Um, you know, it's it's just some dude like vacuuming the church on a Saturday, and it's so like, you know, typical Mormon practice. Like that's the kind of devotion that we have. Um, that that's almost you know that's that's a you know a really mundane way in which we practice our mm-hmm. our religion, and and yet you know I went to to look at it. I was I was leading a tour through, and and. Um, you know, the image, so it's a man uh, vacuuming the church, and you see a Harry Anderson on on the wall of Christ at the tomb with Mary Magdalene, and, Mm -hmm. you know, it has a typical kind of that that itchy wallpaper that they now put on walls, and -hmm. and the the typical table that is in every Mm -hmm. church, and the typical vacuum that is in every Mm -hmm. church, um, and then the typical Harry Anderson, but, you know, this, this is Harry Anderson of Christ at the tomb, it's the resurrection, it's the notion of, like, being clean again, and and that's very smart in relationship to, you know, just physically cleaning a building. There's this, like, mm-hmm. mirroring in it, this very smart mirroring in the photograph of, like, um, you know, this really mundane notion of, like, picking up dirt, um, and and the notion of... of of the resurrection like mm-hmm. it being rendered and 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 of being clean again and um it, it's very very smart in that regard um and and just super funny i i, I think yeah i mean it's funny and <laughs> like the nicest sense right this high yeah. art and it's just some dude vacuuming it's like it's just mm-hmm. so very smart and and um and funny in the best ways yeah um i curated an exhibition that that actually you know was all Mormon artists um, called Love Hours. I hadn't thought about it necessarily as a Mormon show. Um, mm-hmm. It was about motherhood. Um, and I'm looking at, at artists whose work had a kind of time signature to it um, in and, and how time signatures are like a part of often the, the work you do when you try and like memorex or freeze the experience of mothering mm-hmm. um but again it was like making those hours kind of holy so love hours like um h-o-u-r-s not o-u-r-s mm-hmm. 
Um, and it, it had it had a piece by Trevor Southey. It had a piece by Brad Barber. It had a piece by Susan Kruger Barber, uh, Leah Moses Gandhi, and uh, Kelly Brooks. Um, and then a poem by Sylvia Plath was echoing through it. But um, you know, looking at like like there's this one piece by Kelly Brooks where it's a it's a um, portrait of her and her daughter. Um, and they're cleaning the kitchen. So what she did was she filmed herself cleaning the kitchen with her daughter and then watched it. And while she watched it, she did a blind contour drawing. So it's, um, you know, it just looks like lines. But you can see very clearly, like, what lines are the mother's and what lines are the child's. The mother's lines are, you know, these very clear kind of triangular lines, very directional you know, going, using the kitchen in a very efficient way. And then the child's lines just kind of meander and wander. And I don't know, there's something like, again, this really like, and then each one has like a time signature, like cleaning the kitchen at, you know, 5.06 p.m. on such and such a date. And that, that you know, these are these kind of like, um, I don't know, messy things that are a part of like existing and part of just humanity. Um, but that are also these kind of um, in some regard these kind of sacred moments um, uh, so again there was this desire to like I don't know uh, record them mm-hmm. record them for Brooks um, and and to display them for me um, because they were these kind of important moments of just like you know clean the kitchen or mm-hmm. or um you know there's another where um it was like a record of what nine days of breastfeeding looked like like every time she sat down to breastfeed she um just kind of drew lines and um and then overlaid them on pages mm-hmm. of the women we are of breastfeeding and again there's like a kind of deconstruction there i think of, of that book and of that text but also kind of um making work visual that's not seen you know it, it's huge mm-hmm. and you think about all the time that took you know and that's just nine days um mm-hmm. and that that work is just kind of uh you know it's a sacrifice and it's an important sacrifice um where where was it uh, that was at the alice gallery um on south temple um that gallery is run by the state it's named after Alice Merrill Horn, who you know, the champion of, of arts in, in the 30s and founder of the State Art Collection, a Mormon herself. Huh. That's I mean, amazing that sounds, woman. Yeah, that sounds like really beautiful work. I like that idea. Okay, so going back to the church versus state exhibit, um, again, briefly, I'd just like to hear how that came about. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's okay. fine. So Christian Anderson is the the director at the museum uh, of the the Imoka, um, and he's been there for about a year. So he wasn't there during the biennial, and um, and he was interested in the way that institutions can shape contemporary art practices in their collection in 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 the objects that they collect. You know, sure you can study like the scope of contemporary art as it is recorded in art form or as it is recorded according to like a certain like arc of like this is this is like a linear arc like this is like the art that becomes significant or important or anthologized or um canonical um 
but also, you know, like there, there's that, there's that story as it's told, like through the lens of the art world, but also, you know, that there are, there are contemporary arts simply because they are contemporaneous, uh, even if they're not in dialogue with the contemporary art, you know, larger art world definition. And, and he wanted to kind of look and open the, open the doors of, um, of the church's collection and of the state's collection and say, um, because you patronize artists, because you, you are one of the biggest institutions that buys work in the state, um, you therefore shape contemporary art by patronizing it. And so mm-hmm. let's look at the work you collect and, and the work that comes in and out of your institutions. And so, um, so one room is looking at the work in the state collection and one room is looking at the work in the church's collection. And, and the, the room that is for the church's collection is, is all work that I have had the privilege of collecting um, in the last two years. So, um, so they're really recent acquisitions in that regard. Yeah, so I would like to talk about some of those. Um, I'd like to start with... There's a piece uh, by Valerie Atkinson that I actually saw, I remember seeing as an undergraduate at BYU at the Museum of Art, and I was astounded. It was, <laughs> I hadn't seen a lot of um, almost installation, it's an almost an installation piece um, sure. that the on Mormon topics and it it's just gorgeous it's called hanging family history maternal line and um it's um copper wire rice paper pencil and why don't you tell us a little bit about that piece and and just acquiring it sure so um the work you probably saw at BYU was the paternal line oh Um, really in BYU's permanent collection okay um and uh, and uh, we own the maternal line, huh. um, so they are partner pieces, but um, in two different institutions. Um, and that was that was the first major contemporary art piece that I collected, um, and and I probably was able to acquire it within about six months of being uh, employed with the church contemporary but it also I think is very accessible because people can look at it and, and get it right away and I, mm-hmm. I think that that's 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 one of the great things about it but um, so it's, it's Valerie Atkinson it's she she's the triangle on top and then there are all these sort of arms and branches that um, are her family members and it goes back to 7 AD um, mm. which is kind of mind-blowing um, but it also like it has this kind of um, physical sense of being like a double helix um, mm-hmm. in some regard that that's very um, very smart um, um, and and this lovely kind of sculptural quality to it um and and you know it was it was an easy piece to to pitch I think there there was a lot of interest in it and um, a lot of excitement around it um, so uh, yeah so that's in family history I like I like that it doesn't make family history um, you know this kind of neat organized linear kind of tree but rather this 
I don't know, these kind of... Um, it looks more like a real tree or almost this white foliage, like a vine that's hanging down and kind of tangled up in itself. Yeah, there's a tangle, there's an entanglement to it that's really, um, really lovely. Um, and, and Valerie's work in general, um, not just those two pieces, but, but almost every work she does has some kind of reference to the intergenerational self. And I think, um, you know, that's certainly um, a Mormon concept of like understanding oneself through one's progenitors and through, you know, just not just a pioneer legacy, but like through these sort of um, ideas we inherited by looking back and by by the people we're connected to. And, and, and Valerie's work is smart in that there's this, you know, clear connection, a kind of filial link between each individual um, piece of rice paper that, that's, that's, that's fragile. They, the piece has a, a lovely fragility to it that feels accurate and, and true to to the work we do, you know, in terms of like genealogical research. Um, but I also love the notion of this kind of like copper wire running through that it is um, it's sort of like sealed little pieces over and over and over again. It's, it's it's very lovely in that regard. And you know, we we don't exist in this vacuum, right? We we look back and think not only about like um, you know our parents and our grandparents, but it is this sort of like um, you know, commandment to like keep looking and keep investigating and keep searching and keep finding because we are tied and connected and. Um, so in some regard, it's this like lovely, uh, little picture of the granite mountain vault in microcosm, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same kind of idea of this, this intergenerational self. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to you to tell me about Ben Howell's piece. So Ben Howell's piece is called Transcription Number One, done in 2010. It's ink on paper. Um, and when you go to the museum, it's a scroll that runs from the ceiling down to the floor. And it's, I would say the paper, the scroll is, I don't know, maybe three feet across. And, and he, um, has written Book of Mormon verses on, on it. And it's, it's very impressive because it's this very large scroll and it has just, lines and lines and lines and lines and lines and lines and lines of writing. Um, so tell me about that work. Sure. So what you see in the gallery is maybe one third of its length. It's, it's 30 feet long. Um, and it is a handwritten version of one half of the Book of Mormon. So it's called transcription number one. He's working on transcription number two. Um, and, um, you know, his process was very interesting. He um, would read a scripture out loud. He would read a scripture, then say it out loud, and then write it. Um, so he he tried to be very deliberate and methodical in his transcription process, um, and you know certainly very devotional, and makes reference to to scribes and medieval scribes and also Islamic traditions in the way that you know 
um, calligraphy or writing becomes a symbol for a devotional practice or a devotional visual culture. Um, I mean, his handwriting is not like screen calligraphy. It's, <laughs> it's actually very like, um, you Scrolling. know, kind of, yeah, like kind of run of the mill, right? Like it's just these like kind of, you know, typical people's handwriting of our generation, right? We didn't grow up like, mm-hmm. you know, um, we grew up in the computer age. And so the handwriting is, um, it's not aestheticized. Um, and, you know, when he made a mistake, he would cross it out and then rewrite. And those mistakes are embedded in it, but, but they're always corrected. Um, um, so, again, also, it, it, I think, makes reference, again, to Joseph Smith, right? They calling it a transcription process, that it's, you know, that it's um, someone uh, reading something and then scribing it down. Our, our, our stories of the Book of Mormon have to do with, you know, someone hand-scribing and hand-writing and that. That's um, it's very um, embedded in that as well. Um, so, I, I, I mean, the length of the process of like handwriting the Book of Mormon, the kind of intimacy that you would get through the practice is there. Um, and then it's also it's like very fragile in its material. It's, mm. um, you know, it was. I had a dream after we hung it up, like that it was going to get ripped in half. Oh no! <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> terrified. Um, um, but I, I, you know, it's, I think that fragility is, is a part of the. It's a part of the material. It's part of the work. Um, um, even the notion of scrolls. I mean, there's there's certainly reference to to you know scriptures being kept on scrolls and and the fragility of that kind of material and. Um, he came to the opening, um, mm-hmm. kind of partly actually as a joke when we were, I don't know if it is interesting, so cut this. If, if well, I was actually going to ask um, you, um, because you told me that he came to the opening and wasn't he working on it there? I, re- I wanted to ask you about what that was like to, yeah, yeah. I mean, just so, in so your he experience. Came partly as a joke because we, when we were installing it, it was, it was a little challenging and, um the the curator of education there, Jared Stephenson, was like, we should just chuck this and make him rewrite it in the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed and I was like, that is a brilliant idea. Not the checking <laughs> part, but let's invite him. Um, and I mean, it really came together like within hours. Um, mm. Our institution funded part of it and, and Mimoka funded part of it. And um, and he came out, and so he just um, sat in the gallery. We, he used a historic table from our collection, and um, mm-hmm. and hand wrote very uh, quietly in the gallery. Actually, he didn't do the reading because and there were so many people there that mm-hmm. that would be a little, you know, a little tricky. Um, it would but, draw attention to um, itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the whole museum was reopening, so there was a main gallery and you know, four or five other galleries opening. So, um, but, but I think, you know, people were fascinated. It was very cool to like watch the, um, methodical kind of laborious, like line by line, like piece by piece kind of nature of, of producing. Yeah. Well, I would like to ask you questions about all of the pieces in that show. Uh, it's such such great work um but why don't i finish um 
by asking me about Daniel Everett's untitled 2014 photograph of the Provo City Temple, or, well, it's becoming the Provo City Temple, but at the time it was just the Provo Tabernacle that was wrapped up. Right. Right. Or it's, it's a, it was in this transition process, I guess. Right, right, right. I, yeah, I think on my label I called it the Provo Tabernacle Temple because I liked that name better than the Provo City Center Temple. <laughs> but, <laughs> I thought it was more accurate. But anyway, I don't get you to name temple. Enough, so. <laughs> well, the, that name reflects the, the kind of transition, I guess. The, the, yeah, neat, the yeah, neat thing about the photograph is, is when you look at it, um, I mean, you could say that it's in the genre of temple temple f- photography, but you wouldn't, looking at it, you wouldn't know that immediately because to me, when I saw it, it looked like an abstract geometrical work of art or photography. And it wasn't until I read the little write-up of it that I realized that it was the tabernacle. And then I looked at it again and and saw saw that it that it was, but it, it's hard to tell because it's wrapped up in um, some kind of sheet that has stripes on it, blue and white stripes. Yeah, it's, it's wrapped in Tyvek, um, and I I loved that kind of um, uh, the the masking of it. It looks sterile, mm. uh, this kind of sterile. I loved the kind of sterile look to it. Um, there's even these very sharp black or uh, blue and white lines, uh, throughout it. And, um, you know, it's, it's under construction. It's, it's in process. It is again, that kind of mundane kind of thing, but it's also a building that is vulnerable to to flames and vulnerable to time. And I, Mm -hmm. and, and you see that in the building, um, and, you know, in some regard, it felt like David Chapman Lindsay's, you know, hand drawing of of the temple, where it's like very much about like the physicality of it and kind of about the kind of like the building of it um, and the process of it being built. Um, and um, and and yet, you know, it's 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 in all of that and in all of our efforts that like that that's, that's how temple work occurs and happens is in that like in the building and in the process and in that kind of the work and and I liked that the duality to it it seemed to very much explore that notion of, of the mundane and the sublime that it is um, you know this this building in process um, and that we are people in process, and and I, I like that multiplicity to the image. Okay, well, we don't really have any more time, and we haven't even gotten to the, the church's upcoming international art competition, which, um, but you're getting your submissions all in for that today. Um, today's the deadline, so we might have to do another interview with you um, when that exhibit is up. Yeah, and ask you to. ask you some more questions about that. Yeah, that would be great. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry I, <laughs> I talked too long. <laughs> no, it was thank you, thank you. Very enjoyable. There aren't yeah. a, there aren't a lot of P 
people out there who know a lot about Mormon art, especially contemporary Mormon art. So it's it's really great to have a source to discuss that with. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. This is great. I had a good time. Thank you for listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast. For more episodes, please visit mormonartist.net.